From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome to Terra Informa. I'm Carter Grzitza. And I'm Charlotte Thomason, and we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week we're bringing Jason Wong's debut piece about the River Valley Festival that happened on September 15th to the 17th. And then we're tuning into an archive piece by Thasmia Nishat about bioremediation. But first, we have some headlines. Despite what you might think, more carbon in the atmosphere is not all good news for plant eaters. Studies from way back in the 1990s showed that although more light meant faster growth in test groups of algae, it also came at a price, lower nutrient levels. This same phenomenon is showing up in our crops. As development in countries and around the world accelerates, more carbon dioxide is being emitted into the atmosphere, causing food around the globe to become less nutritious. This is particularly concerning for countries that rely upon staples such as rice and wheat. A new study conducted by the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health found that 18 countries may be at risk of losing 5% of their dietary protein from these stable crops by 2050. Other studies found that nutrients such as calcium, magnesium, potassium, zinc, and iron are also negatively affected when exposed to higher concentrations of CO2. The increase in CO2 was also associated with higher starch and sugar content. A study published on September 18th in Nature Geoscience suggests that it is still geologically possible to avoid a 1.5 degree rise in global temperatures. The study concluded that strong action will need to be taken and Paris commitments will need to be strengthened to accommodate unprecedented and ambitious mitigation strategies. The scenario used to model this geological trajectory is a standard ambitious mitigation scenario called the RCP 2.6 by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which projects larger declines in emissions as time passes. No doubt you have heard about the island of plastic trash floating in the Pacific Ocean, but did you know that that is now a, the size of France? Over the past couple of weeks, a campaign has been running to have the island of trash recognized as a country. The campaign aims to help the floating mass meet the criteria set out under Article 1 of the 1993 Montevideo Convention on the rights and duties of states that a country must be able to define a territory, form a government, interact with other states, and have a permanent population. Former United States Vice President Al Gore signed up to be the Great Pacific Garbage Patch's first citizen, and designers helped make the campaign by creating passports and currency for the trash aisle called debris. The point of the campaign is to call attention to the growing problem that single-use plastics are causing in marine ecosystems. In a short video about the trash aisles, Al Gore calls for great efforts towards a circular economy. University of Alberta researchers have partnered with Epic Energy to bring geothermal energy to Hinton, Alberta, a town west of us here in Edmonton and home to three of our Terra Informers, including your two hosts. Hinton is an area that has been extensively fracked, leaving abandoned wells that are candidates to be retrofitted to accommodate the generation of geothermal energy. The deep wells will be used to access heat energy and convert it to power or to heat buildings. There are big expectations for geothermal energy in Alberta, and there's still much research to be done to understand how the logistics of geothermal will work in regards to how underground structures will react and the legal logistics of transferring abandoned oil and gas wells. However, this partnership is a first step in establishing the possibilities of geothermal in Alberta.
Now on to this week's stories. A couple of weeks ago, Tara and former Jason Wong chatted with Larry Wall from the River Valley Alliance at the Edmonton River Valley Festival. Jason also spoke to Hank Von Wilden, who tracked the entirety of Edmonton's River Valley to raise awareness about the need to conserve this landscape, as well as the recreational activities available. I'm Jason Wong, and recently, I had the opportunity to learn about the River Valley Alliance and talk to a trekker who traversed the entirety of the Capital Region River Valley to raise awareness about it. Here are their stories. Hello, I'm Larry Wall, the Executive Director of the River Valley Alliance. And the River Valley Alliance is a partnership of the seven municipalities in the Greater Edmonton area um, that share responsibility for managing our River Valley Park system. The Alliance is the forum in which those municipalities come together to plan their common vision to create a world-class metropolitan River Valley Park along the North Saskatchewan River Valley. We're uh, really excited here today to be celebrating the third day in our first annual River Fest here in Fort Saskatchewan. We've had uh, a great day yesterday at, uh, in Edmonton, a central rendezvous held out of uh, White Mud Park. And uh, on Friday, we celebrated in Devon, the very upstream end of the park. And, uh, and at that time, um, in Friday, we had three trekkers that started in Parkland County at the uh, uh, U of A Botanical Gardens. And they've trekked the entire length of the park, which uh, the river basis is 88 kilometers. They've hiked, paddled, and, uh, and cycled, and swam over 100 kilometers down our Capital Region River Valley Park. That is just an incredible undertaking. Uh, but and along the way, they've enjoyed the trails. They've enjoyed some of the trailside amenities, including uh, parks, uh, way stations, um, and, and things like restaurants and, uh, and that. Here's Hank, who is one of the trekkers. Uh, my name is Hank Van Wilden. I am the CEO of AltaFab Structures, which is a modular manufacturer based in Nisku, Alberta. We manufacture industrial housing, and I'm an avid adventurer and an avid cyclist, and uh, got involved uh, with this program by a friend of mine who, uh, who actually came up with the idea. So, cool. Yeah. All right, and so what was this idea? So uh, my friend uh, Jeffrey Hansen Carlson, uh, he, he had heard about Riverfest and he called them and said, has anyone ever actually connected all the new trails uh, be, um, that are part of the celebration? And they said no. And he said, well, we, we would like to do that. And right away they jumped at the opportunity to get involved and the project kind of grew from that first conversation. And so essentially what we did is we traced uh, the active trail system between the Devonian Gardens uh, just outside of Devon all the way to uh, Fort Saskatchewan. And uh, we traveled by all the major methods of travel in the river. Uh, we paddled, we mountain biked, uh, we hiked, uh, we were on horseback and uh, we did some swimming. So five, five modes of transportation over three days and around 150, 160, we don't have all our data in, but somewhere about 150, 160 kilometers. Uh, can you talk about uh, what the River Valley Alliance is? Okay, the River Valley Alliance is a, uh, is a, a nonprofit organization, basically uh, 
looking at the River Valley as being a really important asset for all of those communities and wanting to have a master plan in terms of how it's developed and how it's utilized and how it's protected. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they look at all of those things and they advocate for funding and for, for planning on how to make a continuous stream of, uh, of options available for people who want to recreate and, but also protect and, and, and preserve it. Yeah, the River Valley Alliance was uh, came began to form uh, shortly after 1996 and 97. It was a vision of the of uh, the municipality, city of Edmonton, and uh, the municipalities of Strathcona County, uh, Fort Saskatchewan, Devon, and Parkland County, and uh, they began working with other regional uh, partners until they formed officially in 2002. Uh, in 2007, we established a plan of action. Uh, that set this vision to create a world-class metropolitan river valley park and uh, and that's led to uh, funding through the provincial and federal governments and we've just completed a capital program that's added 70 kilometers of new trail to the river valley park system we've built in that period two new pedestrian bridges um, we've upgraded three um, other uh, pedestrian uh, bridges across creeks and ravines uh, built this beautiful uh, center here, West Rivers Edge Park in Fort Saskatchewan, and uh, provided uh, things, really interesting things, like uh, that improved the access to the River Valley, like our, um, uh, what we call the mechanized uh, River Valley Access Project in Edmonton, more commonly known as the funicular, and, uh, and the urban staircase that complements it, uh, which is a beautiful feature that's just finishing construction, and we anticipate it'll be opened later this uh, fall. The, uh, that all comes in the back of just the history of the river and the river valley. Um, over 8,000 years ago, the indigenous peoples began to occupy this space, and the river valley became um, a place of coming together, of trading, um, of uh, me meeting up and sharing uh, information and cultures amongst the indigenous communities. And that continued, and that was the basis of why the forts were built along here. Um, we often uh, misunderstand our history in the sense of that the forts brought the indigenous peoples to the river valley. It was the other way around. The reason why the fur trading posts came to the river valley was because that's where the people who lived here frequented. That was their place of trading. And uh, from that history, um, uh, with, with the early fur trade development, when those businesses began to wane, um, of course, the, the, it opened up to uh, further agricultural settlement and uh, other industries as we know today. So the, the history of the river has been very long, um, and today we're trying to celebrate that through our efforts to continue to respect the uh, historical cultures, um, to connect the various communities that are here today, and uh, yeah, and, and really protect and um, preserve those elements of our natural uh, ecosystems uh, that still exist in the River Valley and there's lots of enhancements. A great example is here in, in West Rivers Edge Park where they're replanting um, indigenous uh, or uh, local trees and uh, re-naturalizing this park. It's a great organization because they've been behind a lot of the new trail development and that's one of the amazing things about this trip is I spend probably 10 hours a week uh, personally on my bike in the River Valley and I prior to this I said I have explored every trail in in this region and I can honestly say that there's some new trail sections that I never knew were developed that the River Valley Alliance has uh, 
had part of their strategic plan and, and they've been put in place and there's some beautiful new trails that um, I think everyone needs to discover just like we did. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned that this, this trek that you and the others completed mm -hmm. was part of River Fest, yes. uh, which was run by the River Valley, Valley Alliance. Alliance right? yeah. yeah. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about River Fest as a whole too? So, River Fest is Epcor um, uh, was the big sponsor this year, and and what what ended up happening is uh, promoting uh, three events: one in Devon on Friday afternoon, uh, all day Saturday in Edmonton, and now Sunday here in Fort Saskatchewan, and the events involve. Uh, giving people an opportunity to explore the river valley and actually explore the river. Um, they've had uh, opportunities to paddle the river, they've got uh, rafts, and each, each, uh, each of the three locations had an opportunity for people to get in a raft and float down the river. And there were these get-togethers and not, not trade shows, but basically uh, organizations that are engaged in the river valley um, talk to talk to the, the public about what they do and how they use the river valley so it's just really a river focused event and and good food trucks at all locations and uh and lots of opportunity for kids to have fun it's it was just a fabulous event yeah so then going back to you guys you yep. and your friends uh jeffrey marianne yeah chris who's somehow yep. involved yeah um what what you you mentioned chris uh, brought this idea to you um what really sparked it as a as a, some, something that you said to yourself, you know, I really want to do this. Well, I, I think the River Valley is so important to to me. Uh, I, I grew up in Edmonton, and I've always loved the River Valley. And and what captured my imagination is that I've always dreamed of connecting the, these three uh, municipalities, and this is an opportunity to actually do that. And and at the same time, I was also here to promote. Uh, the use of the River Valley. I'm, I'm a big proponent of people going out and exploring and choose your adventure and you can have grand urban adventures and to highlight that and to draw attention to the, the beautiful gift that we have of this River Valley uh, it was an easy choice to get and go, uh, engaged in it and it sounded like a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and, and no one has done this in recent history, right? Yeah, that's, that's uh, uh, no one has done uh, what we did, uh, and so this was an, uh, and a lot of the reason is because not all the trail systems have been there to link. A lot of people want to do that, and I'm sure there's people who have floated down the river the full way, and I'm sure that people have done sections, but to do it all in one continuous push, uh, push has, uh, has not happened before, and um, we think, we hope that this is the first of many people to do this. Uh, what were the biggest challenges along the way of, uh, of your trek? Um, the biggest challenges, I think uh, Friday night we had a little bit of a headwind on the paddle section, so that was a little challenging for a while and thankfully the wind died down. Uh, the logistics of, of this, um, we're close to having a, it linked, but it's not linked yet and, and so basically having boats or, or swimming across the river to connect these beautiful trail systems, those were challenges. Like last, last evening, uh, swimming across the, the river at a location where they hope to build a bridge if they can get funding, um, that, was, that was cold. And, but what we found is some of the best trails were on either side of the river 
from, uh, from this location and we could see why they wanted us to, to, to connect it there because it's two beautiful brand new trail systems and we just lack a bridge. And not everyone wants to do what we did, which is get in the river and swim across. Uh, that's, uh, that, was, that was a little cold. <laughs> Right, so uh, what would you say you, you learned from the trek? Um, learned from the trek? I don't know if I necessarily learned anything, but it was just rediscovered the full beauty of, of the North Saskatchewan River Valley. Um, I, I, I know the Edmonton section really well. I know Devon a little and a little pieces here in Fort Saskatchewan, but just all the linking pieces was, that was neat to discover and rediscover. Yeah. So uh, if there's anything you would want to share with our listeners, with the public, um, what would it be about this journey that you've undertaken? Well, I, we met and talked to people along the way and lots of people said, wow, this is a great thing that you guys are doing. I could never do that. And I think what I want to do is to challenge every, everyone can get onto the River Valley. It's beautifully accessible no matter what your what your physical uh, limitations or what your physical abilities are, uh, there is an opportunity to explore the River Valley in all three communities and you don't have to have a 51 uh, hour, 160 kilometer trek. You can just go out for 15 minutes, you can go out for an hour. It's worth it, it's worth it to explore the, the beauty that we have here. So that's what I would say to everyone, get out. That was Tara Informer, Jason Wong, speaking with Larry Wall from the River Valley Alliance and Hank Van Wielden, who trekked through the capital region of the North Saskatchewan River Valley. Now we delve into our archives to gain some insight into bioremediation with Tara Informa Thasmia Nishat. In a time when spills, leaks, and environmental disasters are becoming more and more common, how do we clean up in a way that's both responsible and reasonable? Prevention, of course, is always the best policy, but even the best laid plans go awry. And when they do, one answer is often overlooked. Bioremediation. Could you give us an overview of the different types of pollution and pollutants out there that a remediator can tackle? I guess first I'll just say grassroots remediation, or grassroots bioremediation, is basically working with living systems and different kind of allies in nature to help detoxify and regenerate contaminated and damaged landscapes. And so there's different things that a grassroots bioremediator can work with. You know, people work with either plants, and that's called phytoremediation, or they work with microbes and bacteria, and that's called microbial remediation, or you can work with fungi or mushrooms, and that's called microremediation. And whether you're working with plants or bacteria or mushrooms, any one of these things, they have the ability to either break down contaminants or kind of pull them up and suck them out of the ground and kind of sequester them. So they can either break it down, kind of pull it up or transform it. And that's totally dependent on the type of contaminant or the type of ally you're working with, whether it's a mushroom or plant or a bacteria. So in terms of different contamination, urban areas and cities, people are dealing with things like, you know, having soils that have quite a bit of lead in them or cadmium or arsenic. And that comes from, again, you know, for example, lead, we used to have lead-based paints. And so the lead and the paint would kind of chip off the houses and kind of end up in the soil. Or we had leaded gasoline, you know, kind of more back in the 70s. And 
that would again end up contaminating the soil. Some of the pesticides folks would use would also contaminate soils. There's one plant called the alpine pennycress that's really, really good for lead. And then there's other things like spinach and um, brown mustard, sunflowers. Those are also helpful. Um, trees are really great when it comes to poplars um, and willow, for example, really good at pulling up um, different chemicals, um, volatile organic compounds, um, and they can go deeper. Their roots can get at deeper contamination because the biggest thing with plants is their roots can only kind of clean up the soil as far as their roots go. So if you have deep contamination, so let's say you have an old gas station site and the contamination is lower, you're not going to be able to pick that up with a shallow rooted plant. You're going to have to go for something bigger like a tree. Um, a lot of the grasses also really good for dealing with chemicals and um, things like hydrocarbons. And that's because a lot of grasses and trees, sometimes they're just really good at pulling up the different contaminants, but other times they form really, really good habitat for uh, microorganisms. And it's the microorganisms that are actually doing the breakdown of the hydrocarbons. And when there's things more like oil spills, people tend to be dealing things, deal with things like volatile organic compounds, like benzene and toluene, or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. The oyster mushroom or the turkey tail mushroom are really good at breaking down hydrocarbons. There's another mushroom called the garden giant or the wine cap or kingstropharia. And it's a really neat mushroom because it actually helps plants grow. Um, they tend to grow better with this mushroom in terms of relations. But what it's also really good at is dealing with things like E. coli, right? And, and so if you're kind of, let's say, living near, I don't know, like, there's a lot of farming where you are and a lot of that's going into the water. Like there's like runoff coming from manure and things like that. Working with that mushroom and making some form of kind of micro filter would be really neat. Like oil, diesel, things like that. Could you walk me step by step? For example, if they had a lot with lead in it, what kind of plants would they use as tools and how would they go about preparing them? What you would do is, I mean, first of all, you'd want to find out actually what you're dealing with. And if you have some money and you can do a soil test, that would be great. When it comes to lead, there's several different ways to address it. One of the really good ways is the more organic matter, so the more uh, really good compost you bring in, that can help immobilize the lead. So it's less likely to move up into your plants that you're trying to eat from. So sometimes what folks will do is they'll put a lot of compost on, and they'll also use that to build the soil. Because with something like lead, it tends to stick to the soil and be in the soil dust. You also don't want that soil exposed to the air so that it can kind of be blowing around and kind of covering things. So folks bring in a lot of compost. They add something that has phosphorus to the soil because phosphorus does this really neat thing where it can actually further immobilize the lead and then putting mulch on top so you don't see any kind of soil kind of moving up. Another way to handle it is to try to actually pull up lead from the soil with plants. And so in that situation, you would find, you know, from the list of plants that are there, you'd find a plant that's really that's not too bad at pulling up lead. Plant it in rows and as many as you can. And then try to do several cycles of kind of like planting that plant and then removing that plant from the environment. And the one thing is whenever you do something like that, where we call that phytoextraction, where you're kind of using these plants to almost be vacuum cleaners, we call them hyperaccumulators, where they suck up that heavy metal. The problem with that is that you end up with a plant that now has the lead contamination. And then you have to figure out how are you going to dispose of that because it's not something that you can compost down and spread on your garden because a heavy metal can never be broken down. It can be kind of sequestered, it can be accumulated, but it can't be broken down. So that opens up a whole, what are we gonna do on that front? But if you think about how before people would just, again, like excavate all that soil and then truck it away as waste, now people are actually able to kind of 
take these metals out into these plants and then you have a, a lot smaller volume of contamination that you're actually shipping off the site. So that's one way to do it. But let's say you have chemicals. Maybe you'd be wanting to grow a bunch of grasses and trees. You might want to be working with maybe making mushroom beds or what we call microfilters and using that if we're dealing with contaminated water. I mean, one really neat thing about mushrooms is that if you know how to grow them, because if you don't know how to grow them, you can just buy you know, the mushroom spawn and, and build all your micromedia installations with that. But if you know how to actually cultivate mushrooms at a very early stage of that cultivation, I'm not going to get too complex into this because it just gets weird, but at a very early stage, you can actually train the mushroom to eat the contamination that you're trying to, to kind of get rid of. There's a whole bunch of different ideas and they need people to practice them. They need people to try to get the skills and to actually further expand and invent on that. Do you think bioremediation is being used widely for pollution cleanup? And if not, why do you think so? I don't think it's being used very widely. There have been, you know, government testing and, and companies working with plants and bacteria. But I think the reason why it's not being used as much as it could be is because you have a lot in, in when it comes to cleaning up contamination, you have, you know, the companies that are causing the problem, and then you have the companies that are cleaning up the problem, and they're both making a lot of money one way or another, right? There's a bit of disaster capitalism going on. And they, the companies that are doing a lot of the cleanup right now do what we call conventional remediation. And the thing with conventional remediation is a lot of it, it involves a lot of money. It takes a lot of money to do it, a lot of machines. It's more kind of engineering, and it's, it's kind of, yeah, engineering kind of, using chemicals and things like that to clean up the problem. But oftentimes cleaning up the problem in conventional remediation, one of the most popular ways to clean up a bunch of contaminated soil is to dig it up and to transport it and dump it somewhere else. And when we do the whole dig and dump where we take this contaminated soil and then we ship it away and then truck in clean soil, we don't have unlimited amounts of clean soil in the world. And then the contaminated soil ends up in somebody else's backyard. And usually the way this works is that it ends up in the backyard of a marginalized community, right? It ends up in a place where, you know, either it's an indigenous community or, a, you know, a poor community where people have like more economic issues and they're the ones that have to deal with the toxic dump. And so that's not necessarily a solution, but for a company, out of sight, out of mind. And that's a fairly cheap solution because it's quick, it's done, and now you can move on to getting, you know, your stamp of approval, you clean it up and you can go. Um, so there's things like that. And then a lot of the other solutions that they currently work with for example, you look at conventional oil spill cleanup where they take something like dispersants, which is a chemical that helps the oil dissolve into the water, break up into the water. And what that does is it makes a problem of having an oil slick on the top of the water now kind of move into the whole water column and then into the whole food chain in that area in terms of the aquatic food chain. But for a company, that's great because now you can't see the problem. There's no oily birds or you know beaches that are covered in oil. It's hidden, but now those chemicals and that oil are in everything. And you start to see people getting incredibly sick because there's all this research saying that using dispersants actually with oil becomes a way more toxic chemical. And you're starting to see in places like the Gulf of Mexico where they did this in response to the BP Horizon spill, you're seeing horrific health impacts. And it doesn't necessarily clean up the problem, but again, out of sight, out of mind. And then also you have governments that have regulations and liabilities and all this together, people don't tend to necessarily 
be open to working with things like plants and mushrooms that take a lot longer. The big thing about remediation is it's not something that's quick. It takes longer to do and you know, you kind of have to spend more time with plants and mushrooms than with, you know, machines and chemicals. So I think that's one of the big reasons I think we just have a closed industry and we have people making profit and you don't make as much money doing things like grassroots fire mediation. And I think where the money is, is where the resources go. And so I think in those situations, it falls on the shoulders of those who have the hearts to do the work. And so what can we do to support that? That was an archive piece of Thasmina Shot speaking with Layla Darwish about bioremediation. That's all the time we got for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, situated on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. You can also visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Amanda Rooney for headlines, Charlie Blay for updating our website, Andrea Galvan for production, and Sydney Carbonick for organizing upcoming interviews. We've been your hosts, Carter Gruzitza and Charlotte Thomason. Catch you next week on Terra Informa.